I'm Lauren, and I'm a veterinarian. I'm JJ, and I'm a veterinary technician. And you're listening to IntroVets, a veterinary podcast by introverts with high-functioning anxiety. Sounded like a car wreck. I like it. You <laughs> like all of them. Oh, dear. I do like all of them. None of them have been bad. I don't know what sort of, you would have to be like, wah, wah, for it to be a bad <laughs> like, one. Eh. <laughs> like the Debbie Downer noise. I've got those buttons. Yeah. I need to like record one on that and just hit the <gasps> button. Okay. Yes. She's talking about the mad buttons. So we were yep. talking about the cat pushing the buttons mad, mad, uh-huh. mad. JJ bought the buttons. Yes. But they're blank and you record mm-hmm. your voice onto them. So you can make the buttons say whatever, which is kind of dangerous mm-hmm. and thrilling at the same time. Yep, especially in my hands. Yes, a little (laughs) bit worried about what the buttons are going to (laughs) say. But they will say fun things. (laughs) Well, today on the podcast, we have a special guest for you guys. Dr. Lori Funken is going to join us from Colorado. Exciting. She's a licensed professional counselor. She is the director of counseling and wellness programs for the College of Veterinary Medicine and Biomedical Sciences at Colorado State University. And she's also the owner of Whole Vets LLC. This is uh, a business that offers educational training, workshops, presentations, and consultation. In, it's focused in the area of strengthening well-being through the practice of things like healthy resilience, engagement, and compassion satisfaction. Welcome to the podcast. Woo-hoo. Thank you. It's so great to be here. I actually was doing some research for something completely unrelated on Venn and came across some proceedings from some of Dr. Funken's talks. And I was like, gosh, a lot of this just seems really important. And I wonder if we can get her on the podcast. So I emailed her and she was like, heck yeah, which is really exciting. So I really appreciate you answering a complete stranger's email and and being willing to chat. It's my pleasure. I, you know, I love these kind of formats because we can really talk about the things that are important in a casual way, but that reaches a lot of people and it's really meaningful. So thank you for reaching out to me. So you've been at Colorado State uh, as the director of the wellness program there at the vet school for uh, quite a bit of time now. Uh, How long have you been there? I'm in my 13th year right now. Oh, wow. That's awesome. How did you end up working in veterinary medicine? Well, it was kind of an interesting story. I've been a therapist for a long time and um, doing private practice. And then I've worked in different hospitals and organizations in higher education. And uh, I was teaching at a community college. My kids were uh, getting a little bit older and this job came up and uh, I said, this looks like a great opportunity. I had done some work in the past with residency training programs for physicians, and I have a number of physicians in my family. So I thought, well, I'll just see, uh, take a chance, apply for this job. And I was hired, and I have learned so much in these last 12 years about veterinarians and veterinary medicine and the people that come into this kind of medicine. And it's really become a passion of mine. You know, when Mm -hmm. I found out that you have a, like, fully, a fully staffed, I mean, in actually paid position counseling veterinary students, I was so excited about that because that tells me that things are changing for the better since I left veterinary school. You said you'd been there about 13 years. I I graduated from veterinary school about 12 years ago. And while we did have student counselors that you know that were available, like uh, so this would be someone who is trying to become a licensed 
therapists and they're working with us that, you know, there was no one that had like major experience, you know, uh, and so finding that out was really exciting. And then you mentioned to me that I think you said most veterinary schools are going that way. Yeah. At this point, I think almost every veterinary college has uh, maybe an embedded therapist, uh, full or part time, or they use someone from their uh, school counseling center on campus. Oh, wow. Awesome. And it's been a, a real commitment of the AAVMC to support this group of veterinary mental health professionals. And they they have taken us under their wing and we have a whole group and we meet virtually and in person when we can. And there are about 35 of us, maybe a few more right now that uh, work in different schools across the country. The AAVMC, what organization is that? The American Association of Veterinary Medical Colleges. So just out of curiosity, um, what does a typical day look like for you there? It's really interesting because when I first started, I thought, well, you know, I'll be seeing some test anxiety, maybe study skills, a little anxiety around time management, things like that. Every day, I cannot say that one day has been the same as the other in the last <laughs> 12 and a half or so years. Uh, there's always something new and different. Our students are complex, diverse individuals with a passion for medicine and science, as well as high achievers and learners and you know, vet school is uh, kind of a culture within itself and highly competitive. They've worked hard to get here, and then they want to perform well where they're while they are here. And life happens outside of vet school. Oh yes. And so there may be family things, or a death, or a loss, uh, relationship changes, illness. You know, all different kinds of things. So. It quickly went from test anxiety and study skills to really a complex um, number of things that people were coming in to talk to me about. And that's part of what makes my work so rich. And another thing about being the embedded counselor with these students is I can see them in first year, maybe not again till third year, but I already know their story. And so there's mm -hmm. a continuity to our relationship that can start even before school and go on after graduation. And so when we come to graduation in our hooding ceremony, I, I know these students well, and I've known their stories and what they, all the growth they've had in the past four years. And so I would say the bond is a little bit more intimate and fulfilling in some ways to be able to serve this particular community over the course of time. And I think that's so important. I mean, veterinary school is so stressful just in and of itself. But then when you factor in the time in your life where you're in veterinary school, I mean, for most people, that's usually when people are newlyweds. They're starting families. I mean, I'll be honest, not many of the marriages that started out first year were intact by the time we left. I mean, I can think of one one person in my class who stayed married to the to the same person the whole time. Um, everybody else was going through major things. They were having kids. They were having contentious breakups, divorces, um, the deaths of parents. All of those things were happening. And um, myself, having been through a divorce and the death of a parent, like, thank God I didn't go through that when I was also in vet school because I would not have made it. So having these resources is just so important. Just, mm -hmm. I'm so thankful that, that we're starting to see this. And my sense is it's going to grow from not only offering these services in vet school, but even afterwards in practices. And I need a lot of people have EAP programs where their employees can use counselors in the community. But I'm, I'm thinking maybe this, this model will transfer to some bigger practices that they need somebody really on site that can 
as I said, get to know their people, continue to work with them over the course of time. So we'll see. Uh, Now, what is EAP? An EAP is an employee assistance program. Okay. So some organizations have an employee assistance program, which offers maybe six counseling sessions with a therapist for no charge and sometimes legal consultations, support with financial. So they have a whole list of services that their employees can tap into if they need to. Like Colorado State has a big one. I would say some of the corporate organizations probably have an employee assistance program that they can refer their folks to. So then, you know, if the corporate practices are doing it, it might be something that the private practice owners need to start looking at to be competitive. If we could say our goal as a profession is to try to keep the ratio of ownership balanced, then that's one thing that we're going to have to look at changing to, you know, try to stay competitive just to be able to have, well, staff because you've got to mm-hmm. have staff. Right. So, uh, Veterinary medicine, this thing that we love and that we pour everything of ourselves into, why does it make us feel bad? Why does it make us feel bad? Yeah. (laughs) Sometimes. Sometimes it does make us feel pretty bad. Sometimes it's a good day, but, you know, there's uh, definitely days where you want to pull your hair out and never come back. I think the answer is in the question. You said you pour yourselves into. Oh. And I understand that. You pour your whole selves in. So it's important to really think about, um, there's a term that we'll probably talk about, pathological altruism. And that's when we put all of our energy into serving others and the needs of others, and we don't leave enough for ourselves. So it becomes at a cost to us. We become ill or unhealthy because we're giving, 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 and not taking anything back for ourselves. So I've created this care equation, and it's simple. It's X is equal to or greater than Y. And in the equation, X is you and your health and well-being is equal to or greater than serving or always being there for everyone and everything else. And that's a really hard concept for veterinary professionals because they're used to putting everyone else first. But it's kind of like the airplane. If you think about, remember we used to be able to fly on those big things that went through the sky? (laughs) (laughs) Yes. And they say, um, should the oxygen mask come down, please secure your mask first before helping anyone else. And and we've heard all that a million times, but we don't put ours on and then we pass out. We don't have enough oxygen flowing in. We pass out. We can't serve the way we, we would like to. And then others are coming to our aid because we're not able to function. And so... The thing that, and I do the same, I pour my life into the work that I do. It has so much meaning for me. And yet I need to realize that I need to set limits on that so that I can have enough enough oxygen to serve others at the full capacity that I want to do that. So it's all tied together. But if you aren't able to do that, yeah, you start to feel bad. Yeah. You feel exhausted. When I was reading through some of the proceedings from some of your talks, there was one quote that sort of stood out for me. And that quote was, for those who devote their lives to the service of others, the physical and emotional demands can lead to exhaustion. And I was like, oh my gosh, you just described in one sentence the way that I feel, (laughs) you know? (laughs) Mm -hmm. Right. And I would say in some ways, the culture, well, and again, we're talking about me having been out of school for over 10 years. So things could have changed dramatically in 10 years. But when I was going through school, (laughs) so Dr. Funken is going, no, no, she's shaking her head. No, it has not changed. Okay, well, (laughs) uh, wishful thinking. But, you know, the culture of veterinary school almost made you feel like if you don't have poor boundaries, if you don't 
pour yourself into every little thing, if you don't give way more of yourself than is, you know, even reasonable, like then you're not good enough. This is what you signed up for, you know, that kind of a thing. The culture almost makes you feel like asking for things for yourself, like, gosh, you know, for me to stay healthy, I need to work only 30 hours a week. I need to have time to work out. I need to have time to cook meals for my family, you know, things like that. The culture makes you feel like those are not things you're allowed to ask for. Mm -hmm. And so, like, I think, and also because veterinarians are, you know, really high achievers or else we wouldn't be in the program. If someone tells us, like, um, you being a good person and a good veterinarian is dependent upon you constantly making sacrifices and and we don't even want your time. We want your ability to ever retire. So we're not going to pay you much. We want you to never have family events. So we want you to, you know, we want you to come to class, even if it means missing a family's funeral that happened to people in my class where they were not allowed to attend like important funerals to come to school. I mean, and just cr- stuff that I think back and I'm like, that was insane. Like, like that was crazy town. Why, why, why are we placing these demands on veterinary students? Because it leads, I think, directly to veterinarians being like, I'm a bad person if I don't do this constantly. And I, I think that, I, I mean, it's just, it, it's not um, what, it's not sustainable, I don't think. Well, and I think, too, that the same thing kind of bleeds into um, the workplace because, I mean, oh, yeah? as a technician, that same culture continues and you know you're you're expected to come into work when you're sick you're expected to uh if it's you know immediate family you can maybe go to the funeral but come back afterwards or um this a lot of a of that that goes on and i don't know you know which came first chicken or the egg is it the workplace the school the school the workplace but um it kind of definitely bleeds over into the workplace there's a there's a cartoon um that I and I don't know if it's a veterinary specific cartoon, but I saw it on the Murderinos in Veterinary Medicine, I think that Facebook group, but the cartoon is like um someone is has passed away and they're in their casket at their funeral and their boss is at their side saying, We really need you to come into work tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? <laughs> and it's like, oh, <laughs> Uh, well, that's a little bit too close to home. It is. <laughs> These are really important issues around the culture of vet medicine, and I don't know how to do it differently. I haven't figured that out. When I do, I'll let everybody know. Um, <laughs> it even starts before veterinary school and preparing and all the hours you do volunteering and, you know, getting the grades and all of that. So I think there's this you know, it starts early and, and you, you're right, they're high achievers. We do the strength finders assessment with our first year students. So it just kind of assesses what your top strengths are. And the majority strength is achiever and learner. Mm. So with a culture of achievement, there's a lot of competition. And so I think uh, changing that culture is going to be a great challenge. And it's necessary. I'm hoping it's starting to change. But if we want people to be able to live and be whole human beings that practice good veterinary medicine, we need to shift the culture to to say it's okay to take care of yourselves. And one more quick thing, which is kind of funny, but it's really serious, is my 
colleague, Dr. Jennifer Brandt, she's the uh, health and wellness director for the AVMA right now, and they're putting out a lot of good programs and information. She showed a slide at one of our meetings, and it says a culture of suffering or something, the fine art of <laughs> suffering. And, you know, it's examples like, um, I haven't had anything but a power bar to eat today. And someone else says, well, you think that's something, you know, I haven't eaten for three days. And then the next one is, uh, I haven't had time to sit down and take a break for six hours. Well, you know, I haven't had a time to sit down for about two days now, you know, and I didn't sleep at all last night because I was doing records. And then, well, I haven't had a chance to go to the bathroom for six hours. Well, hey, I just decided to wear a diaper to work so I don't have to go at all. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and so it's like yeah. he, or, he or she who suffers the most wins the prize. Oh, yeah. And I mm -hmm. haven't figured out what that prize is yet. Mm -mm. That's kind of... <laughs> is kind of making light of the situation, but that's the culture. So what if you said, I'm going to go take 20 minutes for a lunch break. I'll see you guys. I'm going to sit outside. What would happen? You know, why can't we shift that culture to a culture of self-care where you're, someone comes up to you and says, Hey, JJ, I know you haven't had a break. Why don't you go take 20 minutes, do whatever you need to do. Come back. We'll, we'll, we'll take it from here. Some practices are doing that. Yeah. But, I would uh, probably fall on the floor. <laughs> you probably would. <laughs> yeah. And then the person that goes outside for 20 minutes comes back in and everyone's looking at him going, wow, that must have been nice. Mm -hmm. We had 16 cases in the last 20 minutes, you know. <laughs> <laughs> if we start to feel exhausted and overwhelmed, one of the things that you talked about in um, the proceedings I was reading is that the natural response is to work harder, um, which makes sense to me, you know, if you're having a hard time, I kind of am like, okay, it's bootstrap time. Let's just pull yourself up and we've got to get this done and work hard and just do it and more working. And, you know, so why is that so damaging? Yeah, I think it's the result of that. It's um, part of it is imposter syndrome. And it's there's some of the things that you started talking about at the beginning, like feeling like you're never enough, you never mm. have done enough, that the expectation is that you, are, if you're not doing it all, you're not dedicated, you know, we had to do this, so you have to do this, and some of those kind of messages that are ingrained, and then they become our own mind telling us that, our own voice, and so we're exhausted, and the one more thing comes in the door, and we think, okay, I just have to do this, I have to work harder, there must be something wrong with me, why can't I handle all of this, right? But we all have our own capacity for how much we can do. And if we don't honor that, I think working harder is a strategy and it's sometimes a coping strategy. If I work harder, I'll prove that I really care or I won't lose a client or we'll bring in yeah. more money or I'll still be valuable. Um, so it becomes, and I'm going to bring up a concept that is fairly new to me in the last couple of years, but. If being a veterinarian or a veterinary professional in some way is your calling, uh, it becomes about who you are, not only what you do. And so we really need to look at separating who we are from what we do. And your practice is the skills, the techniques, the appointments, the medicine you do. Your calling is who you are. And it's important to separate the two because if you're so identified with medicine as your calling, you can't say no to anything because it's 
so core to you to, to serve. So how can you serve yourself and separate your calling from your job? Not all the time, but on some days where you're just kind of depleted. I need to take care of myself. I need to turn that calling of service back onto myself so I don't burn out and crash. And we've lost people, and you all know that. You probably know some that we've lost. Because veterinary medicine is their calling. It becomes who they are. So to think of even saying no is going against everything core to them. But boy, if we're going to survive, we need to absolutely be able to say, not today. So I, I'm not sure if I answered the, the question, um, but I think it, it's, a, it's a big issue. And I, I have someone I'm working with on a research project called The Dark Side of Calling, which is when our calling becomes damaging to our own mental health and well-being, our physical health, and our lives. Oh. Well, I'm going to have to break out the tissues now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so... If you're listening to this podcast and the things that Dr. Funken just said hit pretty close to home, you are not alone. In 2015, the CDC did a survey of a little over 10,000 veterinarians. And Dr. Funken is going to just briefly review some of those findings, but it presented a really stark picture of um, veterinarians, mental health, and uh, even suicide. And it really, I think that was the first time that I started in the mainstream media hearing about the mental health issues that impact veterinarians. And I think it really kind of took off from that point. The first research around veterinary suicide came out of the UK and David Bartram's work. And then in 2015, the CDC did a survey of about 10,200 veterinarians and about 6.8% of the male and 10.9% of the female respondents were characterized as having serious psychological distress which is compared to 3.5% of men and 4.4% of women of U.S. adults overall. So we were a little over double uh, for the females and uh, double for the males as well. Wow. Um, And then since graduating from veterinary school, 24.5% of male and 36.7% of female respondents reported experiencing depressive episodes while 14.4% of males and 19% of females reported suicidal ideation. Now, it's important to understand the difference between between suicidal ideation and suicide attempt or um, completion, right? Um, Ideation is just that thought of, I wish I wasn't here anymore. I wish I didn't have to do this anymore. I wish I could just go away. So those kinds of thoughts are around wanting to get away from something that is um, causing us despair, whether it's work or relationship or whatever. It's not necessarily, I want to kill myself, but there's this ideation of, wouldn't it just be better if I could go away for a while or didn't have to deal with this anymore or just fall asleep for forever? Um, uh, and then some people have really ideations around, uh, I can't do this anymore. I want to end my life. So there's different, there's a spectrum of thoughts that come with the ideation. And then um, the numbers of completions, 1.1% of males and 1.4% of females reported suicide attempts. So this is higher than the general population. I don't know if the numbers are where they are today, five years later, uh, 
Merck did yeah. a study that the results weren't quite as high um, as the CDC study, but I know the CDC has followed up with a uh, looking back on as long as they've been keeping records of um, veterinarians' deaths, how many of those were attributed to suicide and how many were attributed to something else. So that's a, a more recent CDC study. Um, so there's ongoing research. The bottom line is um, it's higher than the general population. And it, at one point, was the highest of all the health professions. So hmm. it, it's a serious issue and uh, something that we really, I'm glad we're talking about it. Me too. You know, this has been such a taboo subject, I think, for such a long time. Um, well, suicide in general. My great-grandfather completed suicide and that was like a huge family secret um, that as a child, I went through like um, detective mode, library archives, you know, all of these things to try to figure out and uncover what all was going on. Why are people being so weird about, you know, the death of this person? Um, so that that happened back in the 40s. So it's like not even we're not even 100 years removed from a time when suicide was so shameful that like. It was not mentioned. The person's photos were all destroyed. Like, it was pretended mm. like, who? who, Like, uh, mm, we don't know. That person died in some war. I don't know what you're talking about. So, like, it has not been that long at all. And so, I think that the only way that we're going to be able to get to a point where we can fix this is not to be like, those things never happen. Let me close it into a box and, like, put it on a shelf someplace. If we don't talk about it then it just becomes something shameful that, um, you know, that happens uh, to someone or that happens to a family and not something that we can potentially intervene with. So I, I'm really excited to be talking about it. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, there's definitely like, a, uh, before I learned how to create boundaries and use the word no. <laughs> um, <laughs> Which is recent. Yeah, right? very in the recent. Past one just year. in the past couple of <laughs> years, if you're... Um, I I can totally think of several days where I would like just think, you know, if I just drove into this side of this road or, or into that tree, maybe it would just injure me long enough to where I can get a break. And it's like, I didn't care how injured I got, really. I just was like, I would rather do that than go into work. Hmm. And yeah. then... You know, I kept ignoring those signs and then started having panic attacks going to work every day. I mean, daily. Mm -hmm. They were short. I didn't know what they were. And I wasn't talking about it because I didn't know what the heck was going on with my brain. I'm like, does this mean I'm suicidal? Does this mean this? I don't know. I wasn't in therapy at the time. And I was kind of scared to say it to anybody because I didn't want it to, like, become a real thing because you know, if I opened my mouth and then I waited too long until it became too much to deal with and my body just kind of was like, you know what, we're uh, we're going to take a, a mental break here. And whether yeah. you like it or not, and uh, luckily I got myself kind of straightened out. But, you know, in talking about it to other people, it's like there's almost anybody that I've talked to about it has said, you know, I've had the same thoughts. Oh, yeah. I'm like, this is this is bad. Super Very bad. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Sometimes. Well, and let me ask you a question because I don't, um, I, uh, I had always thought that suicidal ideation was like 
what you were saying on the high end of the spectrum of like, I am actively planning this, you know, mm-hmm. but you said um, it can be as something as mild as like, what if I just didn't have to deal with anything anymore? You know, like, mm-hmm. what if I just was taken out of the picture? Because I often, <laughs> I, often I often think about, uh, have you ever read the book or seen the movie Cold Mountain? I've heard of it. So it's set during the Civil War and this guy, um, you know, he gets injured and he's traveling back to his love, you know, and he's very dangerous. And he he comes across this um, little old lady living like in a hut on the side of a mountain. And she's self-sufficient. She's like got her garden. She's got her herbs. She's got her goats. You know, she's <laughs> super happy. She doesn't live with anyone. Like she just is a mountain woman doing her own thing. And I often am like... Do I want to withdraw from all society and start my own tiny goat farm? <laughs> so is that the same as suicidal ideation? Or is that more like, what is that? Does that like escape from reality? Yeah, that, <laughs> okay. that, that might even be self-care. Oh! <laughs> <laughs> no, I want to be really clear here because um, suicidal ideation is extremely serious. Yeah. Uh, and there are thoughts of, of not wanting to be here anymore that I think probably... Everyone has had at one point or another, especially when we're really having a rough time. Like, wouldn't it just be nice if I didn't have to be here anymore? Mm -hmm. And then, like I said, um, as it starts to get more around um, the thought moving into an actual idea of a plan, that's very serious. So I would I even take those. I wish I wasn't here anymore or you'd all be better without me. Those statements and things are are serious and you need to talk to someone about it. Even if it's a fleeting thought, like, you know, maybe I'll just drive into that tree. Uh, but there's some despair under that. That needs to be taken seriously. So I'm not uh, downplaying the ideation. Um, yeah. I think we get really concerned in thinking that ideation equals um, plan of action and and uh, uh, suicide, but there are stages, and the, there's really good suicide training on the AVMA website. I would recommend that anybody that belongs to the AVMA take it, because it goes through the levels of um, thoughts and ideations and statements, and then plan, access to means, you know, all of those levels. And um, sometimes uh, folks are spontaneous. Uh, suicide is a more spontaneous thing. So um, it's really important to take all of that seriously. Uh, I think we get frightened with ideation and we immediately call 911. We need to talk to the person before we do that and say, okay, I heard this. Let's understand this a little bit better or refer them to someone that can talk them through those things because we need to take it seriously, but it doesn't mean that we need to immediately have them hospitalized and I think if someone out there is feeling uh, suicidal or having some of these thoughts to find a trusted, someone that they can trust that will really sit with them, listen to them, not be reactive, but be present, active, searching for something that will really help, finding the right resources, maybe going with them to see someone. I, I do think it's important if we keep it to ourselves out of fear, uh, JJ, you know, what you went through, that deep level of despair and then um, the anxiety and the panic and the and the physical and mental and emotional cost of that is is large. So if you have those people in your life that you trust and can talk to, I think that's uh, that's also a great resource. So I think I can bring this back around. Um, all these things are 
you know, unfortunately pretty common in veterinary medicine, like we have said. Um, but why do you think it's happening in veterinary medicine? So just uh, from my perspective and from working with um, veterinary professionals over the last 12 and a half, 13 years, some of the things I've already talked about, the calling to medicine, which happens sometimes for people at a very young age to serve in this way. So it is a big part of who they are. The means through which they provide that service may be different. Uh, you know, veterinary nurses and technicians and veterinarians, physical therapy, whatever their their method of providing that service. If you look at the, the patients that you're working with, animals, uh, they can't speak for themselves. And when we see their suffering, we feel that. Um, we have that human-animal connection and bond. Uh, many people go into veterinary medicine or the veterinary profession because they don't want to maybe work with people. But I tell... Hammer, nail, head. Sorry, I'm just I'm laughing because that's so common. Mm -hmm. It is. And so I tell our students the first day of orientation that we have yet to have a dog walk in the front door of the VTH with... Uh, his Visa Gold card and say, hey, you know, my back left paw has been really bugging me the last few weeks. Can you help me out? You know, if they're only. attached. <laughs> there's a <laughs> yeah. human being attached to the end of that leash, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. And they have an emotional relationship. They have a responsibility. So all of those kinds of things. And if you're taking highly sensitive, highly caring, service-oriented um, individuals, and then we're in situations oftentimes where we may know the best thing to do for the animal, and the client will say, not going to do that. Yeah. Or they bring in an animal around the holidays. I didn't realize this happened until I got into this profession and say, we're all home for the holidays. I think it's time to put Charlie down. Mm -hmm. And you're like, well, Charlie's not ready to go, you know. So some of those ethical and moral um, dilemmas, when you're a person who's highly compassionate and giving and caring and and dedicated to your service and it's your calling. There are a lot of dilemmas, a lot of, a lot of things that that pull on your emotions. And uh, I guess that's kind of what I'm thinking of when you when you ask that question. So maybe a little bit of just the way that people who end up in veterinary medicine are. So the way that innately we have to be to to conceive this as a calling, right? Like just the personality traits may make it more difficult for us to um to say no when we need to say no and to and to kind of care for ourselves that's an interesting mm -hmm. way to think about it yes and i i know there are some folks that have not really had the calling to veterinary medicine since a young age it may be a second career uh there's some folks that love medicine and science and they really want to do the the medicine part of it um and so Sometimes when they get into a practice where veterinary medicine has to be your calling and you have to offer your whole life for it and some of the things we've already talked about, um, they're like, no, no, this is not for me. I want to do medicine. I want to do surgery. I want to do whatever this is. But this is my job. So um, not that they don't care or aren't as compassionate, but they have a more clear sense of that this is the job I want to do. It's not who I am 100%, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. yeah. So we have both of those things going on. And sometimes those people where it just is a job, they get looked at and people are like, how can you treat this just as a job? What's wrong with you? And so we need to, <laughs> <laughs> we need to be really careful about that too, right? Mm -hmm. You're not yeah, as dedicated absolutely. as we are because you're actually going home at five. Uh, so 
Uh, we need to be careful about that because mm-hmm. we need all of the veterinary medical professionals. And I've had some that have gone into practices for the medicine and then they've left the practice because they're not going to give their whole life for it because it's their job, not their their calling. So, yeah. So, Dr. Funken, one of the things that really jumped out to me when I was reading the proceedings from uh, that talk at the 2019 PACVET conference um, it was this idea of edge states, which I had never heard of before. But then I started reading. <laughs> I just it was like a little chart in the uh, inside the proceedings. And I was like scrolling through and I was like edge states. And then I started reading them and I was like. I feel very called out by this chart. <laughs> like, every every part of this chart is something that I have experienced. I mean, sometimes all of them in one day. <laughs> I know, right? And things that I um, recognize in colleagues, too. And so I was like, I kind of amazed. Hey, someone has already... Um, perfectly described and actually has clinical definitions for the way that I've been feeling. (laughs) Um, So uh, this chart, this information we're about to go over was the main thing that made me say, I've got to send this person an email because like we, we've got to talk about this somehow. I've never heard about this information before. And I think it's so important that we talk about what these edge states are um, because like, if we, if we can't recognize it, then we can't, fix it, right? So, mm-hmm. um, so Dr. Funken, what are the edge states? So I'm going to start off this section by saying that uh, this is not my work. Okay. <laughs> this is the work of Roshi Joan Halifax. Uh, she's a Buddhist uh, nun, monk, and she has a... Um, oh, wow. She had a fellowship um, and spent years researching this. She's an anthropologist she had a fellowship um, to put together to write this book, and her book is called Standing at the Edge. And uh, I read it; it's a great read. I okay, first, we'll put it on the we'll put it on the book list. We are yeah, a reader of books here. <laughs> good, and she is the one that came up with this after years of research as an anthropologist working with medical professionals in end of life care. Um, and I saw her at a conference in 2014, and when she went through the edge states, I thought, oh my gosh, that's what I'm seeing every day with the people I'm working with. And so I've um, presented them, I've added a few, um, but I think her book didn't come out until 2018. So uh, get it. It talks about the edge states in detail, and it talks about how to address them and work through them. Um, which we can't do all of that in a podcast, but I'll definitely, uh, yeah. <laughs> um, I'll name them and, and define them and oh, yeah. see if you find yourself in them uh, and know that then there's a lot more information in her work. Um, so pathological altruism, which is, you know, altruism, and that's probably a lot of what calls veterinarians to veterinary medicine too, are altruistic tendencies. We're going to save things. We're going to be a a savior, a hero, a a healer, uh, all of that. And then our, you know, as we talked about, our patients are, uh, it's almost like a pediatrician where you have a patient that doesn't have agency over the decisions that are made. Plus, they can't speak to you. And we just love animals. So Mm -hmm. um, pathological altruism is altruism that, that goes beyond just regular altruism, but it ends up causing physical and psychological harm to ourselves 
because we place the needs of others above us. Wow. That's why I came up with the care equation. Your needs are equally as important as those you serve. So pathological altruism, causing physical or psychological harm to oneself by placing the needs of others above one. And then she said the other edge state is burnout. Uh, most of the work on burnout has been done by Christine Maslick. And uh, I can give you some resources for that. Oh, that'd but, be great. Yeah. Yeah. Burnout is actually the feelings of feeling overwhelmed and hopeless. Um, the World Health Organization just put burnout in their diagnostic manual mm. as a syndrome. It's only workplace related. It's exhaustion um, caused by the cumulative demands of our workplace, right? And then the wow. stress that that causes. And we start to pull away or withdraw uh, when we're burned out. So it's now a syndrome in the ICD-9 or ICD-11 diagnostic manual. So people are being diagnosed with burnout. Wow. Mm. Secondary or vicarious trauma. This is what we would call compassion fatigue, where we're exposed to others' pain and suffering. Um, and it creates a sense of that trauma in ourselves as if it's happened to us. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So... This term first came out of um, post-traumatic stress disorder, which was being seen from veterans returning from war. The people that they were living with, their family members, started to experience some of the trauma as if it had happened to them, but it had not. But it happened to their loved one. Yeah. But they were feeling some of the same things. So if you think about secondary trauma with either a client or a patient, a client that's going through uh, losing a pet the same way you lost your pet, some of those other things where you're starting to experience the trauma that they're having as if it's happening to you, even though it's not. And that's, I think, what we call compassion fatigue. Um, it's related to that. Compassion fatigue is not in this list. And I talked to Roshi Joan about that. I said, what about compassion fatigue? And she said, mm -hmm. it's not our compassion that gets fatigued. We get fatigued um, by experiencing these things, but we still have compassion and care for others. Hmm. It's interesting. If our compassion does get fatigued to the point where we disengage, that could happen. If we get fatigued to the point we disengage and aren't compassionate anymore, that's a different thing. But she says we innately have the ability to be compassionate. And she goes way into this in the book. But our fatigue is coming from empathy. And so that's the empathic distress, which is a self-oriented emotion. My emotions arise when I'm empathizing with the suffering of another person. And it leads to strong feelings of distress in me. It's like I'm, I'm experiencing their feelings for them as if I'm them. I'm getting into whatever they're feeling with them. And sometimes if we go into empathic distress, I don't know if you've ever had this happen, but a client might say, oh my gosh, I didn't mean to upset you. I'll be okay. And they start to take care of us mm -hmm. because our unregulated empathy or um, distress around feeling these feelings that are so huge for us uh, makes them want to take care of us. So it's important. Unregulated empathy becomes problematic because we might either withdraw from the situation, we shut down our feelings, and that's why we feel like we're having compassion fatigue because I don't feel compassion for anyone anymore. But we, it's really our empathy that's distressed. This is a big concept, so I would encourage people to look at it more closely. Yeah. Because I do think we get fatigued about around giving compassion, but we still have compassion. <laughs> Unless we go into empathic distress and completely shut down and burn out, we completely withdraw. 
horizontal or vertical hostility. So it may be in a, the group of um, one group of technicians, or it might be in the group of owners or whatever it is where you start to diminish one another. So it's not that um, vertical where it's a top-down thing or something like that where you're feeling uh, maybe put down by the boss or something like that, but it starts to happen within the group, if that makes sense, within your group. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then moral distress, which I I talked on a little bit before, feelings provoked by real or perceived violations of our moral or ethical beliefs. We think there's something we could do that would be fairly easy to to solve the situation and the owner says, no, I'm taking him home or what, whatever the situation might be. Yeah. Or as an associate vet being told you have to do a procedure that you think oh, yes. is not necessary um, or as mm-hmm. a veterinary technician, the same thing, having to be a part of something that you know is maybe not the right course of action. I believe that moral distress is probably the most damaging emotion that we feel. And for my own, when I kind of figured out that I was hitting a place that wasn't good for me, it was the day that I realized, oh my God, I'm in moral distress. I'm not just tired. It's not just the workload. Um, It's not empathic distress. It's the moral distress of trying to serve veterinary students in the community uh, of veterinary students that I work with, and then putting them back in a situation where they may be humiliated. And then they come mm. back to me. And um, so it was dealing with the culture that I was hoping to have an impact on, but I can only impact the individual. And so it was a whole thing in, in my life Gosh. about yeah, how can I continue to work sometimes in situations where I feel that people aren't being um, valued the way that I would morally and ethically value them. So I had to come yeah. to terms with that, just like all of you have had to do. When you said that you feel like moral distress is kind of the big player in veterinary medicine, I, I completely agree. Mm-hmm. Um, just because of the sheer volume of examples I can think of off the top of my head, where I have been either asked or um, told that I was going to do something that I felt was wrong. And it's really only been in the past five years or so that I've been able to be like, no. And then if you do stand up for yourself, then there's all this guilt about standing up for yourself, which is a really weird type of thing to have to to navigate too. But I 100% agree that our our profession deals with so many situations um, from economic inconvenience, euthanasia, all the way up to procedures that are considered outdated now, um, maybe in parts of the world banned completely that we're still sometimes asked to do. Um, and there's so much pressure to to just say, OK, but then you feel terrible about yourself either way. So mm-hmm. like that's not cool. Being asked to not do things that you've been trained to do. Like, for instance, you know, monitoring your surgical patient, you feel the whole side of things from the client side of, well, we can't afford to do this, so we're going to have to put the dog down or refuse the care that you're recommending because I don't think that you're what you're uh, recommending is is true. You're just trying to get money from me. In addition to that, then you have the whole do 100 percent agree with what management is asking me to do or not do. It kind of it definitely puts you in a place of feeling helpless, and mm-hmm. uh, it's 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 very uh, draining. Are there any others, Doctor Funkin, that you would add to that list? I think one that I've added is decision fatigue. Oh, that's oh. a good one. Uh, well, yeah, 
she had I told this JJ her. this morning, she, <laughs> we were having our pre-podcast meeting and she was like, you know, we kind of make an outline, but, you know, we never end up following it exactly because it, it's a conversation. So you get off topic and things. But she was like, How, you know, I really want like, when am I supposed like what concepts am I supposed to talk about or ask about and what concepts are you supposed to ask about? And I finally was just like, I cannot make any more decisions in my life right now. <laughs> and she's like, do you want me to handle it? And I was like, yes, please. <laughs> like, just... <laughs> If you uh, could just point out the ones you want to do, like literally whatever you choose, I am super fine with it. I just can't. I I cannot make one more decision, not even between burgers or chicken for dinner tonight. Like, I can't. That's one of the big things that Ben Mm -hmm. and I, uh, my husband and I have issue is like, I'll come home and he's like, what do you want for dinner? And I'm like... I don't care. Just please say something. Does not matter. Anything. (laughs) And he's, you know, we're both kind of the indecisive introverts. So it can go on for hours. Like, okay, what do you don't want? So I'm just like, please, let's not do this. I can't. Like a dinner standoff. Okay. I, this is completely off topic. Okay. But I have a partial solution for you, JJ. And it's what I used to do with my good friend, Wendy, when we would not be able to decide about. Is it a wheel of restaurants? It's dice. So we took (laughs) dice and we put the names of the restaurants and we would roll. And you know what the funny thing is? When you roll and something comes up, you most of the time you have a reaction, either like yay or no, Uh which is so funny. (laughs) But like making the decision part is so hard. Anyway, sorry. (laughs) Oh, it's true. Or stating stating what your decision is, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, JJ, we should have just played a game of dice to to divide up the the concepts that we're talking about. We're going to do that next time. (laughs) So I think decision fatigue is something that happens um, that we don't really talk about that much. And then the other one that I have come up with, it this is after a lot of thoughtful reflection, is um, the concept of healthy versus unhealthy resilience. It's hard for me to talk about in some ways because we talk about, oh, we just need to do resiliency training with our veterinary students. And I'm like, frankly, this is the most resilient group of people I've ever met in my life, (laughs) veterinary students and practitioners. And I think the resilience is part of the problem because it's part of what is killing veterinarians. And I know this is a strong statement. Uh, I'm just going to put it out there. Let's do it. Mm-hmm. it it's my, yeah. These are my thoughts after a lot of reflection and watching people in the profession is that um, resilience is wonderful. Resilience is how we b- bounce back from difficult situations. Um, resilience is what gets us through right? Vet school, the loss of a parent, um, the ending of a marriage, whatever it is. But resilience is not enough. There has to be a period of healing, of becoming whole again, allowed to be able to take that break and and take some time to heal. And there's a concept, um, a Japanese concept of kintsugi, which is um, an art form where they take broken pottery and they put it back together with gold. Mm-hmm. And so they take these shards and then they put them back together with gold. And so I talk about that around healing. So resilience is one thing to get you through it, but you need to stop and heal. Put yourself back together with gold. Why not? Right? Mm-hmm. Um, healthy resilience is when you can say, okay, I've gone through. Um, all of these things, uh, a lot of losses, and now we're in COVID and, you know, all of these things, I need to take a break and do some healing. The folks that I've seen 
struggle and suffer and the, and some of the ones that we've lost, I think, have been resilient to the point where they had nothing else to do. They could come up with yeah. no other thing. They've taken, they'd done everything they could to take care of their clients, their patients, their employees, the community, whatever it was. And they had a problem come up and they had no more resilience for it. They had no more energy. It's because they hadn't maybe done the healing or the processing or whatever they needed to do coming up to that. And that was the straw that broke the camel's back. These are just my thoughts. It may or may not be right. It may or may not fit with folks. Um, and yet I feel like sometimes resiliencing your way through things without taking time to heal gets you to a place where you finally hit an edge. There's nothing else to do. You're in such despair and we lose you. You quit the profession. You go to drugs yeah. or alcohol, uh, you commit suicide. So resilience is wonderful in getting us where we need to go. We need the healing to be along with it, to, to have healthy, whole resilience. Um, so whatever that's worth, that's th those are some of the thoughts I've been having. I think that you're right on. Yep. I think when I think of resiliency, I think of like the old like pull yourself up by your bootstraps thing, you know, that I mean, and that was ingrained in me when I was, you know, growing and I even do <laughs> sometimes if someone at work is having a bad day. I'll be like, do you want a Dr. Bob Sims pep talk, which is my my late dad? And I'll be like, you just decide, do you want one or not? And then they'll be like, yes. And then they know that it's like a shtick that I do. But it's like, I'm joking, but like only a little because it was serious. You like, use it on you know, yourself like, all the time, too. You're like, what, <laughs> Sims, what are you going to do? You're just going to lay down? Because my dad described saying that to himself. You know, he mm -hmm. he came back from Vietnam and he would describe it as I got back from Vietnam and I had to go to bed for a while. This was before we knew really about PTSD, or maybe we knew about it, but in small town Alabama, this was not addressed at all, right? Mm -hmm. And so he calls it, he went to bed for a while, you know? And then one day he was like, Sims, smack, you know, like, get a hold of yourself. We got to do something with our life, you know, and everything. And so, like, my whole life, I heard that story, like we were talking about earlier. This has got me down. Well, now I'm just going to make plans. Like, if I can make the most perfect plan, then my stress will go away, right? And so then I end up being like a color-coded, tabbed list person, you know, and everything like that. But it, sometimes at a baseline, those things do help, like time management, like self-care, those help. But at a certain point of stress, you're right, you got to pull the emergency lever. I think that one thing that might make that very challenging is the financial insecurity that we face as veterinarians and especially mm -hmm. veterinary staff. So there, there is that to think about. Mm -hmm. And I think that that might be why we see major breaks or leaving the profession completely. I often fantasize about regular jobs. Like, mm -hmm. I, I admit it. Like, what, <laughs> what would it be like if I worked at a garden center? Having the financial security to, like, do that if you are the major breadwinner for your family, which happens to be my case. Mm -hmm. And I know it's the case for a lot of people than that. Ooh, you know, like, <laughs> okay, but what are we going to do about uh, the mortgage, you know, mm -hmm. and, and all of these other things? So it becomes really tough. So then we get into like, well, now we've got to draw boundaries at work and we might be trying to draw boundaries for ourselves with management and owners, not pet owners, but clinic owners who may not be as understanding they may come from a different 
generation because i think it is generational they may even be offended by the idea that one of their employees or associates would dare to say i can't do this at this level anymore i i gotta scale it back i worry that our profession does not make it easy for people to make little changes it's almost Mm -hmm. like our profession forces people to either stay in it or like pull the lever cronk, like we're, you know, like emergency escape hatch type of situation. I don't, I don't know. What do you think about that? Well, I think um, I'm going to go back to what you said about your dad. Okay. Cause I think he was right on. And I think he was practicing healthy resilience because what oh, wow. he said is he came back from Vietnam and he went to bed for a while. I don't know what that was like. If he had depression, if he had anxiety, post-traumatic stress. But he took that time before just pushing through to the next thing. And maybe that was a healing time for him. I don't know. I don't know him. I don't know what the situation was or why he took that time. But if it was so that he could just kind of reset, process, heal, reflect on things, get back to his foundation. And then, yeah, Sims, we're getting up and now we're going to do something. So I'm not sure if that's the 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 story around it. That's the story I kind of put in my head. <laughs> sure. I mean, I think I think at that period of time probably was 100% necessary for him. Mm-hmm. He would always say like, it was wrong of me to take that break. Well, he might not say that, but that was the impression, right? The impression was that uh, this was not like a planned, um, <laughs> a planned uh, uh, time period of peace and wellness. It was more mm-hmm. like a... His body made the decision for him. Yeah, mm-hmm. right. Yeah. So... I don't know if he would agree with you, but, uh, but I yeah. I think that the that it was probably absolutely needed because if he didn't do that, well, then what was going to, you know, what, <laughs> what, what is the result? You know, if you push through that, what what is going to happen? I don't mm-hmm. know that, it, that, that the alternate version of that ends with him being really successful. Right. And so if you think about uh, veterinary professionals taking that break, I can imagine some of them would say, I didn't want to, but I had, you know what I mean? Get to the point yeah. where they would say, oh, it was a bad idea for me, but it's a life-saving idea in some ways. So it- it's not easy to say that. Um, sure. And the reasons he took it, you know, for if his body said I can't go on or whatever. So anyway, it's just something to think about. What does that healing process look like? And it's going to be different for all of us. And we may call it something that, you know, it was a break that I shouldn't have had to take or whatever. Um, yeah. You know, he was to, a real tough guy. Of course. <laughs> and, and, you know, the Lone Ranger veterinarians and veterinary professionals are the same. I can do everything. You're I don't right. need to take a break. Um, but the cost of that can be high. To the financial thing, I think that's huge. Don't know what the answer to that is. Uh, <laughs> the yeah. debt to income ratio is not getting better. Um and it's a huge contributing factor. Uh, it probably should be on that list of things, that, of the challenges, uh, the economic challenges, especially for technicians or associate veterinarians, people that need the job um, for the money, uh, but then are put in these positions where they have to do things they may not choose to do if they had a choice but they can't afford to consider losing their job. And that's probably the number one thing that is an obstacle when I talk to people about, okay, so I'm feeling some of these edge states. 
uh, what can I do? Yeah. I mean, one option is to look at what other work you could do, um, other, but they're, they're stuck in a contract or uh, the financial obstacle is a big one. Yeah. Um, so it feels like there are no options because um, they're the breadwinner or they have to have their income. Um, they have to pay off loans. Uh, certainly that could be another several podcasts in and, in and of itself, um, mm-hmm. you know, uh, unfortunately. Yeah. I feel like I, I've kind of lived that whole situation a little bit where, I mean, before I got married, I I could not afford an apartment and a car payment alone. I had to work three jobs to be able to do it. And I was younger then and I could handle it. If I thought about trying to do that now, I'd. I don't know. That's oh ew. yeah. <laughs> There's no, no <laughs> There's just no way. I might like, I don't know how I did it then, but my, I mean it was I had no choice. And it mm-hmm. was, you know, early in my career, so I was still like I am technician, I can do all things. But I definitely've gone through the whole edge states. I mean, like they're saying some of the times all in one day. Um <laughs> yeah. and I, unfortunately like sometimes every day for a week or longer and by ignoring the symptoms I was having and also not knowing that I had the ability to, you know, maybe fight back a little bit uh, and say no or just say, you know what, I I get that you might need a couple of us to stay late to handle this, but I'm not going to be the one this time. Instead of my nature was to volunteer all the time because mm-hmm. I felt like I had to try to be the best at everything because then I would be the favored technician. I would be, mm-hmm. you know, the one that they always went to for things. I wanted to be needed. And when I got to the point where things were kind of falling apart a bit, it was, I was like, okay, I know that this has to end. I know that I have to stop doing this, but I feel like I can't because I feel like I'm giving up. I feel like I'm I'm mm-hmm. showing a weakness. I'm throwing the towel in and People will no longer like me and think that I'm a bad technician, I'm a bad employee, and a bad person. And mm. I finally, I had to listen to my uh, brain and body because it was no longer willing to function normally. And I did do some corrective measures by getting into some therapy. I should have gotten into it sooner than I did. And just in the last year, I am definitely learning to create the boundaries and to say no and to take time. I don't know that I waited too late or not because I'm at a point now where I did, I took seven months off and did nothing. I didn't work. Uh, I basically, ba- a couple of times a week, I would go and have lunch with friends, mainly Dr. G. <laughs> and <laughs> um, then COVID happened. So mm-hmm. I kind of really took a further step back and was like, okay, um, don't need to be working right now, really. Yeah. I don't know if I can tech again. It's scary because yeah. I still kind of like miss parts of it, but other parts of it is like I walk back into the treatment area and I'm like, no, I don't want to be here. And so I'm just, I'm trying to continue to listen to that. And I mean, because mm-hmm. yeah, there's a, a pay cut, pretty significant one to go from technician to receptionist, but I'm making enough money to do what I need to do. And I'm enjoying my job and I'm feeling useful and needed. I think it might be kind of a a lesson learned of listen to what your brain and your body are saying, because if you wait too late, bad things can happen. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And you're still um, going through that healing period. I was hoping that seven months would do it, but. uh, Well, (laughs) 
That's okay. <laughs> how long have you been a technician, JJ? I started teching in 96. So however long that is. Uh, a hot minute. So uh, let's see. 24. Yep. I think it's reasonable to take longer than seven months for 24 years. <laughs> uh, yeah. We did the damage over two decades. So yeah. I think more than seven months is reasonable. Yeah. That's just my uh, thought, you know, and certainly, you know, not everyone has that ability, right? Or mm-hmm. um, not everyone has that that privilege, right, to be able to to take that time. But if you do and you need it, Take it like it's, mm. you know. And I think sometimes we feel like there's a good decision or a bad decision or a right or a wrong decision, but decisions are just different and they lead us to different places. You know, uh, we choose the right path, uh, the path on the right hand side, and we go down there, and then there's a split. So there'll be another decision, right? So mm-hmm. it's not like it's a right or a wrong decision or the best decision or the worst decision. Um, it's just a different path. And so it'll lead to another decision point and then you'll make the next decision. And um, we never know what's going to come from some of the things that we do. When I stepped out from working to take care of my kids, I was uh, 40. I was making a fairly good salary and I thought, I'm not going to get a job as a 50-year-old woman. You know, uh, who's going to 10 years out of the work field? It's not going to happen. I have the best job I've ever had. Yeah, <laughs> that's know? amazing. So we never know uh, where yeah. our path is going to lead. and Yeah, uh, you don't. I'll, and I'll just mention my mom because she listens to the podcast. <laughs> but so my mom is a pharmacist. So she trained as a pharmacist and then she took time off to raise kids. And then she went back and got her master's degree in education. Okay, completely changed careers and was a school teacher for more than 20 years. Okay, and then... Went back to pharmacy after being out of it. She was out of it for like almost 30 years. And she was like, it's crazy. I can't, you know, like you can't just go back into pharmacy or whatever. But, but you know what? She super did it. (laughs) She super did it. She just did it. And it was totally fine. And no one was like, you took a break from pharmacy, you terrible person. Everyone hates you. P- people were like, we really need you to work as a pharmacist. Could you come in like right now? Like right now is that? And she was like, ooh, I need to uh, finish some studying and stuff. You know, like, and they were like, okay, well, you just let us know. Like, we, we need you super bad. And um, she settled in and had like a, so we say like a third career path, even though, mm-hmm. it, you know, the first and the second or the first and the third were the same. But really, she started a third career. She was in her 50s at that point, And she worked a long time, like over mm-hmm. ten, over 10 years before she finally retired. So that is another example of how like every decision is not a make or break. I have a big, big problem with that, with remembering mm-hmm. that. Like, I'm like, do I stay in relief work? Do, you know, I have a lot of people saying, we really miss you seeing our animals. We we really want you to open a clinic, but is that the right path for me? And do we need to duplicate those services? And, you know, like all of these things and I kind of constantly feel like I can only pick one thing for the rest of my life to do. It's so stressful. Mm-hmm. But like, sometimes it's nice to hear someone say like, actually, you can just pick one thing and if then just not do it if you don't want to. <laughs> right. There'll be another decision. That's okay. Mm. That also I, doesn't make you a bad person. <laughs> yeah. And I, I do think part of what's difficult 
is the calling piece and the meaning piece mm. that we get out of our work. Yep. So it's a loss around what we thought we would be doing and what we'd hoped um, when we shift from one place to the next or one role to the next is there's a grieving period that happens with that too. Not that you'll never go back in tech again or that associate veterinarians that leave one practice will never practice again, uh, but that we need to acknowledge that it's not just a decision. It's also there's emotional attachment to it and meaning and calling. And if our role is who we are, we it's not just a job, then that's, that's a little bit more difficult um, because we feel like we're letting people down um, or ourselves. We make yeah. assumptions on what other people are going to think. They may or may not think that. But for yeah. us, we really need to do some self-reflection on what does this mean for me? And um, yeah. there's a loss there and a grieving period and some of that time to reflect. Well, um, we kind of perhaps didn't mean to make you therapize us on the actual <laughs> podcast. But, oh, um, gosh. <laughs> Sorry. I didn't mean to no. do that. <laughs> no, I we I feel like we should pay, pay you. I know, right? <laughs> do you take my answer? Um, so, so we've talked about the edge states. Are there strategies or what strategies can we take to sort of prevent ourselves from getting to these edge states? So I think the edge states uh, might just happen. Um, oh, yeah? Okay. I think being aware of them, uh, naming it. Then being able to identify, okay, am I in, like when I was able, and I've been teaching this stuff and I'd heard it from Roshi Joan, I'd gone to some of her workshops and it was like two years after, three years after that I actually was able to say out loud, I'm in moral distress. That statement gave me the power, the internal, that knowledge gave me the ability to then say, okay. This is where I find myself. What do I need to do? Yeah. So just knowing if, I, you know, if you're in a state of pathological altruism where you're always taking care of everyone at your own expense, I'm in pathological altruism. Whoa, this is going to be harmful. This is harming me. Yeah. I'm, I'm sick. I'm not sleeping. I'm not eating right. I, whatever, um, to just stop and say, okay, that's where I am. What do I want to do about it? I'm in empathic yeah. distress. I must have something that I have not quite worked through uh, because my empathy is unregulated. I'm feeling such empathy for every single person I see. I need to take a break. I had one doctor tell me that um, over the course of a couple of weeks, every appointment, every wellness appointment ended up with some kind of a mass in the stomach or a cancer or something and yep. um, just said, hey, I, I need to stop doing wellness visits for a couple of weeks. Can one of y'all take those on for me because I just can't face another one? That was empathic distress. The empathy for the owner and the pet was just like, I'm feeling too, too much here. I need to step back. Yeah. So I think naming it is the first step, as it is with any anxiety or anything that we're going through. Just give it a name. And when I could say I'm in moral distress, then I could say, okay, what's contributing to that? What elements do I have control over? I can't change the culture. Yeah of the hospital, it's not going to happen, or the program or veterinary medicine. I can't change that all. What can I do? I can meet with each individual student in my office, look them in the eye face-to-face -face when we used to be there, and support them any way mm -hmm. I can. So I was able to focus on my priority, what meant the most to me, what, what brought the meaning to my work. Can't change the whole outer thing that's causing the moral distress, but I can put my energy into each and every student that comes to see me. And that helped me 
get through that time. So it sounds like what you're saying is that we can't really necessarily prevent the edge states from developing, but if we feel them or if we we kind of feel ourselves in that situation, being upfront, naming it kind of gives you power over it. And then from Mm -hmm. there, it might be completely individual what you do to combat it. Exactly. Exactly. And um, I don't, I think it's fine to have these definitions and know what they are, but I don't know that you can really understand what it's like until you feel it. I mean, there may Mm. be preventatives just from doing this talk, having people look them up, say, okay, I'm going to keep my eye out on that. If I start getting overly empathetic with people, I'm going to pause, right? Or if I start getting super fatigued and feel like I'm checking out, I'm going to kind of address what's going on. Or if somebody asks me to make a decision and I just can't even, there's nothing comes to my head, it's sawdust, then okay, get some help. So, you know, I think it's, it's it, both things can happen. I don't know about preventive. I haven't really thought about that before. Talking about them in your team meetings, putting it out there so people can look at it, say, okay, no, nope, I don't have any of that or I have a little bit, you know. Yeah. Can, do you think, can colleagues aid um, other colleagues that are experiencing these edge states, can they help them identify that that's what they're experiencing? Or is it really just kind of an individual introspective process that needs to happen? Definitely. If, if you uh, have the information and you know, if someone's talking to you about what's going on, I can now tell people, obviously, this is my job, but um, I think you're in a place of moral distress. That sounds like a really morally distressing situation or empathic distress, or there's some um, horizontal hostility going on in your group or something like that. So if if you're talking to a trusted colleague and they can say to you, wow, you know, uh, that sounds like moral distress or whatever, I think that's fine. Or if you hear it in someone else, I think you can share it by saying, hey, have you heard of this concept before? Um, so yeah, I think uh, being able to talk about it uh, is good. And then people figure out their way through. So what role do you feel like leadership and hospital management play in fostering a more healthy environment? I think it's really important. <laughs> <laughs> it's a big question. Sorry. Yeah, it is. Yeah. It, I, I think there is a big, a significant role. Um, a couple of things. I mean, what creates the culture are the explicit rules of the culture, the explicit things that define the culture, um, how you do your work, the policies, the procedures, how you treat people, how people are hired and you know, some of those things are the, the overall structure of the practice. Um, team meetings are important. Um, but if you look at burnout and what leads to burnout, which leads to disengagement, um, if you want an engaged workforce, um, look at the workload. How is it distributed? Is it is it something that we can sustain? Um, and a lot of these are, are things that the leadership ship, um, can address or must address. So how, how is the workload handled? Um, how are things around control handled? Do the do the staff and people that work here have control? Do they do they have a voice in decision making or new policies or new procedures that we're going to do? Is everyone invited to the table? Is this something that leadership has to decide on their own? But how can we communicate that? Um, so I'm going down the elements of burnout, which are workload, control, um, respect and rewards. How do we respect and reward our teams, our people? How do we reward ourselves? You know, we model. What do we model around that? Um, fairness. How are things done in the clinic around fairness with our team, with um, policies that are applied or 
uh, the way we treat one another? Is it is it fair and respectful? Is there a sense of community and connection here? How do we connect with one another? Uh, do we do it on a regular basis? In what format? And then the last one is values, which is what we've been talking about around the ethical piece. Um, if you're in a clinic or a practice uh, where you're, it matches your moral and ethical values, for the most part, maybe not 100%, but enough that you feel comfortable there, where those are respected, um, you're in a healthier place. So I think the tone of a practice oftentimes gets set by the leadership and how the practice is organized and structured. And then how the workload is done, the amount of control, the fairness, the policies, and all of that stuff is underneath that. And a lot of times those are established by the leadership, so there is a big piece in that. Um, there's also some influence that the team can have and say, listen, it'd really be helpful for us to have more regular meetings, especially with this COVID and all the uncertainties. Can we have check-ins? Or is it safe for us to say, okay, today I'm pretty much decision fatigued, so I have about 10% decision-making capacity. Does somebody else have some 50% decision-making that can help me out? I think some of those cultural things can be set up. The other thing I would ask everyone listening to is to think about, have is there a time when you've worked in a place with a culture that felt really safe, supportive, comfortable? What were the elements of that? Are those in my current culture? If not, are there things that I can suggest or request that would bring those in? So um, leadership definitely plays a role. Uh, I've done some veterinary clinic workshops where everyone, they closed the clinic for a half a day. Everyone came. They bought lunch. I did four hours. We'd done some assessments before. They sat in tables of mixed people, you know, people that were coming from all different roles in the clinic. They came up with some great solutions to how to engage each other more on, on a daily basis, shadowing one another. You know, the person that gives the estimate to the client said, this is really hard. So the veterinarian said, hey, maybe I should shadow you on that because I just yeah. tell you what we're going to do. And then you have to go talk to the client. So let me shadow you on that so I can see what that's like. Uh, and this was a very open and receptive leadership team that wanted to make a difference in their culture and they were willing to sit there and listen and say okay let's try this that's really exciting to hear mm -hmm. that there are um you know that there are uh clinics uh you know work environments out there where that type of collaborative effort is being made and also with the eye towards just kind of keeping everybody as healthy as possible sometimes i feel like um well, in, in most of the situations that I've been in, you know, it's that has not I mean, I, f I feel pretty comfortable saying that that has not been the case, um, you know, that everybody's kind of just hanging on by the skin of their teeth there. And it, it even management and even sometimes the owner veterinarian will be to the point where they are they are experiencing edge states and have for such a long time that they're just done. Like they're just, <laughs> they're like, I don't want to hear your problem. You know, I don't know, you know. Um, so it's really exciting to hear about, um, to hear about practices that are actively trying to engage in this way. Um, I can hear in my mind, though, owners, not, not pet owners, but clinic owners listening to this podcast 
and like turning it off right now because they're like, ah, these people don't understand, you know, like that kind of a thing. Yeah, uh, that's like the so I, the new fight is uh, um, trying to. Uh, I don't know, it feels like you know sometimes what I've done in in previous jobs um, is just like here's here's a suggestion of maybe how we can make a change to help alleviate some of the stress and that it is just kind of like you know you're yelling at a, or, or talk, trying to talk to a wall it's like they don't want to hear it um it, for mere, whatever reason it is either they think that your opinion is not important or they feel like uh their uh way of doing things is the way it's always been done so it's not broke don't fix it only it's severely broken so it's uh that's that's been like the new question for me lately is what can you do to try to get to to break through and try to get them to listen when th- there's not a perceived problem but there's obviously a problem <laughs> yeah and it's difficult and in some situations you may not be able to do that you know the clinic owners that contacted me were willing to sit down and and hear all this the beauty of this meeting was that everyone was able to share in a safe space and the teams didn't understand the pressure that the owners were under mm-hmm. some of the decisions they were having to make uh and they didn't disclose you know intimate details of what they were having to do but just enough so that the team could say wow i never thought about that or yeah. uh, i didn't realize you were going through that and so it takes some vulnerability to be able to be that open. Um, and we have to remember that there are so many things behind the scenes going on that, that we might not know about. And mm-hmm. yet to break through some of that um, takes this dialogue and a, it's courage, I think, to just sit down and say, okay, let's have these discussions. We may not be able to do anything different right now, but... Maybe we can at least hear each other's situation a little bit and have a better understanding. And that's what happened in this day. And it was really helpful for the the team to hear that the the clinicians really wanted or the owners really wanted to be able to give them raises. And they were working as hard as they could to come up with a way to do that. But what the team had thought before going in was like, they really, they're not, they don't, you know, this is not even on their radar. Mm-hmm. But they'd been struggling to figure out how to do it. But no one had said anything. So anyway, I think it's difficult to do. Um, and just remembering that each person in the operation has their own story and their own um, stuff they're carrying, their own load. Um, but the more we can can understand that uh, and talk about that, it might start opening up some of those possibilities then to hear each other differently. Right. I've been in meetings and presentations where I've heard from owners that this all sounds great and no way, you know, it's going to be really hard to do. I, I, and I, I'm not an owner, so I, I really, I cannot speak for them at all. I mean, I think the idea of being open and honest is is a really important one. And I think that there are ways to do that without jeopardizing the business. You know, uh, I think a lot of people are really start to get nervous when you talk about transparency and things like that, especially from the financial side, because they maybe have the idea that talking about wages, talking about compensation, things like that 
makes people upset, you know? Um, but um, what I've found is talking about those things in an honest way actually helps remove the, um, because it, it helps remove the secrecy aspect of compensation and, you know, also then the gossiping aspect and things like that. Like it, it uh, is a drama antidote, you know, it's instead of people, I think people are always worried if we have some sort of meeting and address benefits, time off, pay, you know, any of those things out in the open, then it's going to, you know, turn into some sort of a, a drama circus. But I actually think that the opposite would happen, that, you know, once we allow kind of everyone to understand, well, this is the pie that we work with and we're literally divvying up sections of a pie. There's not an endless supply of pie. We just have this pie. We've got to figure out how to work the best. I think it would help people be more compassionate to one another, workers to owners and vice versa. And also, um, also bring new ideas to the table of like, well, have you considered like taking this part of the pie out completely? Because we, I don't think we need that anymore, you know? Mm -hmm. um, so I think that it might open the, the stage for new ideas. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Getting people to the table, though, I think is the tough part. But transparency, I, I think it is important if it can happen. Because people will make things up or make assumptions. So the more accurate information is, is best. Like that, I think the old adage is like, if you don't, if you don't tell people what's going on, they're going to guess, and they usually guess like the worst possible scenario. Mm -hmm. Yeah, <laughs> that's definitely true for me. If I if I perceive that something weird is going on, I usually jump to conclusions, and the conclusion I jump to is usually like pretty far down a rabbit hole. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah. Yeah. that's yeah. what we do. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <sighs> It sounds like practice culture is really sort of a driving force behind engaged employees and that employee engagement, while it might not be protective uh, for people, it might help people feel more open about sharing that they're experiencing edge states and then help them to sort of do the healing that they need. So if we find ourselves in a place where the culture that uh, is already established is not ideal for wellness and health, what sort of steps can management and owners take to change that practice culture? If they actually uh, recognize that that they need to address the culture and possibly make some changes to it, that's a big step. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah, that uh, that awareness, and then probably some thinking around uh, what is the culture currently, where are the challenges in the culture. So when we do workshops on this, uh, we look at what's currently going on, uh, what's working, what's not working, what are the issues that we're seeing coming up. And like I said, around the, the burnout elements, is it workload? Is it burnout around uh, compassion fatigue? Are there moral and ethical issues going on? So kind of identifying what areas aren't working well. So do you have a consistent mission, vision, and values that everyone in your practice knows? Uh, are they committed to it? Is it working? Right. And then from yeah. that, you build um, the different practices in your practice. Like uh, what's the greeting that they get when they call in? What would a client tell me uh, when they walk through the front door up to the reception? How are they greeted? 
I mean, all of those things indicate what's going on in a practice. All those things identify pieces of your culture. Some of these things are implicit, uh, that they're not really written down, and we kind of know what they are, the hidden things that happen. But then we have explicit ways that we practice, that our culture runs, the policies and procedures, um, the roles and responsibilities, and all of those things. So I think when you're looking at culture, it's really taking a good look at how have you set it up? What's your mission, vision, and values? What are your, what are your goals? How involved will your team members be? Who's at the table? How much transparency is there? How do we deal with difficult situations and difficult discussions? A big thing in cultures, too, is how do we deal with adverse events and mistakes? So some kind of transparency or policy or, or framework around how our culture runs and how we would define our culture. What are the things that are a mismatch right now? What do we need to look at improving? Uh, what's going really well? You have to write those things down. You have, to, you have got to celebrate the successes. What goes really well? Okay, where are the gaps? What do we need to look at changing? Adding, deleting. And as you said, JJ, I think it's important to have some of those conversations. Um, I believe you said this around then. Uh, I have an idea, or, or I think Lauren said this too, around what, what can we do differently? Here's some thoughts and ideas on that. And then try things out. The issue with it is it's going to take time. It's going to be hard to stop and take that time. If you're seeing a lot of people walk out your door, um, you're losing associates, you're losing techs, uh, you're losing front desk people, uh, you know, you're miserable, <laughs> maybe a time to, to look at it. And I guess people could even if they're, everything's going, they seem like it's going great, just highlight that and, and uh, have a meeting, uh, you know, like, a, um, like you take your car in for an annual checkup. But, yeah. <laughs> but do it on a, a more regular basis. You know, we take our cars in for servicing every three to 5,000 miles. Let's, let's do that. Should we almost look at it as sort of a triage situation, like um, sort of like what we do in veterinary medicine, where we're like, oh, okay, the patients, the, <laughs> the patients that are in a dire situation that can't breathe, that are, you know, having a major bleeding event, that kind of thing, they get they get seen first and then sort of the moderate things next and then the little things are going to be kind of the last thing to change is that a is that a smart way to think about it since what we're describing if there are big swings in culture we're we're going to have to take some time to deal with this when i hear the word triage i think crisis <laughs> so <laughs> um i would hope that this wouldn't just be done in a crisis but i think the triage model is good around looking at what are the big things what are maybe the not uh, there's this great matrix that um, Stephen Covey has um, around urgent and important. And the first quadrant is urgent and important. The next quadrant is urgent, not important. The next one is not urgent, but important. And the next one is not urgent, not important. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, but anyway, as you're talking about that, I think if there's a really big thing, if it's not urgent, but it's important, maybe it could wait. Um, the middle, middle things, uh, I, I would start with the smaller things, because if people start to see that oh. smaller things are happening, uh -huh. like we're really making some progress. And these are, like my colleague says, the low hanging fruit, the things that are easiest to pick off and say, OK, we can do we can do that right away. You know, I can shadow you when you talk to clients about billing or, you know, cost estimates. I can do that tomorrow. Yeah. Do you know how good that gal felt? She was like, oh, my God, you'd really do that with me? Small thing, big difference. 
Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, you don't have to tackle it all, but if there are some smaller things, you can say, okay, let's start with these and then we'll move towards this. But this bigger thing is important, not quite as urgent. So it'll have to be done a little bit sooner than maybe some of these middle things that are not urgent, not important. But I, I think starting to see some small successes will get the momentum going for people and they'll say, okay, we really are going to do something different this time. We're not just going to talk about it, but we actually did this. I actually shadowed that person. Now I know what she feels like. Now that you say that, I think I think that's a great idea. I was thinking like, oh, we got to start with these really big things, but that might be overwhelming. Mm-hmm. So, okay. So small. So pick a baby step. Start with a baby step. Yep. I like it. Yeah. Yeah. I like it. Well, Dr. Funken, thank you so much for meeting with us today. Yeah, it's really been a pleasure. I've enjoyed our conversation, our <laughs> closet conversation. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> yes, we're we're all recording from our closet, you know, for the sound quality in our houses. Um, the book that you mentioned at the at the outset by someone who sounds like a super badass yeah. Buddhist nun. <laughs> yeah. Will you say that information one more time? Yes. It's Standing at the Edge by Roshi Joan Halifax. Dr. Funken, thank you so much for meeting with us. Mm-hmm. It, it, it uh, I think, is going to be a really good episode, and I think that people are going to really be helped by this information. So we really appreciate it. Absolutely. Yeah, you're very welcome. If you have stories, cases, fun facts, or inspiring animal uh, human interest pieces, animal interest pieces. Animal interest species? We'd l- no. <laughs> We'd love to hear them. <laughs> Send the them to us. stories that are deserving of tiny medals. That's right. Send them to us at introvetspodcast at gmail.com. And also don't forget to check us out on social media on Facebook and Instagram. Yes. And like and rate and, and all that to the podcast. Too. Yes. If you haven't subscribed to the podcast yet, please do that. And if you haven't rated it and left a review, please do that. It really does make a big difference. And we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Bye.